But today we'll wrap up our series on the book of Haggai that we've called Flipping Houses. How many of you have, you know, would just admit that the decisions of the generation before you, whether it be good or bad, affect you today, right? That's pretty obvious. Things people done in the past have an effect on us today. Our environment means a lot in the formation of who we are and what we will face. Decisions and events from years ago affect us today. There are huge sweeping implications of the things from the past. Like if America loses the Revolutionary War, then we're all drinking tea instead of coffee, right? Ew, nobody likes tea. It's garbage water, right? Or if the Allies lose World War II, then we're all speaking a German-Chinese hybrid language. Or if Marty McFly doesn't go back and make sure that his parents fall in love, then he will disappear forever, right? What we do affects a lot of people. Our choices matter. There are groundbreaking DNA studies going on right now that say that trauma faced in generations before us can actually live in our DNA and be passed on to the next generations. A team of researchers from Cambridge University are studying what's called the epi, uh, excuse me, epigenome. And this is what they say. They say that information on our DNA needs to be reset in every generation before further information is added to regulate development of a newly fertilized egg. It's like erasing a computer disk before you add new data. But what they found is that up to 5% of the DNA information is not always erased. And we can make bad decisions that can pass things down to future generations. These things can be like obesity and stress and addiction. Uh, Walfred Tang, a PhD student who's the first author on the study says, our study has given us a good resource of potential candidates of regions of the genome where epigenetic information is passed down, not just to the next generation, but to potentially to future generations. And we know that some of these regions are uh, the same in mice too, where they may provide us with an opportunity to study their function in greater detail. So what we see here is that there is evidence that our actions affect the core of who we are. It makes a difference, the choices that we make. And we can pass that on innately without even mentioning the culture and environment that we create for those that are in generations after us. We see this in the Old Testament, how God often reminds the people about the sins of their fathers. Why? Because it would be easy for us to fall into those sins. And we see in the Old Testament they often did. Our choices matter good and bad, and the effects can last a long time. So today we'll wrap up the book of Haggai. It's only two chapters, but it's packed with relevant stuff for the church today. Real quick recap, we remember the Jewish people had come back from 70 years of exile uh, in Babylon, in Persia. They're excited to rebuild the temple of God and rebuild their city. But then they get distracted and they get discouraged and their priorities are all wrong and they have put their houses over the house of God. And they needed to flip those priorities, flip those houses. And they needed to put the worship of God first. So God calls Haggai, the prophet, to get them back on course. And they needed to get their priorities right and push through discouragement and disappointment and rebuild the temple because it's going to make a difference. 
And they need to also make sure that they're pure in heart and motives. Because our actions can be good while our hearts are still bad. So today we're going to see, lastly, that Haggai reminds them that this world is not the end. And even when things don't look like we want them to right here on this earth, there is a future hope in God's kingdom. When he will make all things new and defeat every enemy and wipe every tear from our eyes. We'll see this in Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. We've seen over and over again God coming to Haggai and telling him to tell the people some messages. And he does that once again. It says, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 12th, uh, 24th day of the month. And he says this, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. And I'm about to destroy the strength of the uh, kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one of them by the sword of his brother. One day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetel, and declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. Why? Because I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So this message is specifically meant for Zerubbabel, who is the governor that had been helping lead this effort of the temple rebuild. And Haggai says, God will judge those people and those countries that reject him. Evil is not going to win. God will have the final word, and he will shake the heavens and bring every kingdom down except for his own. God will bring down every evil nation, and he will defeat them just like he had done before. In the end, his kingdom will reign for eternity in peace with him as king. So this message isn't just a message for their time. It's a prophecy also for the future. He's reminding them that God had defeated Pharaoh, and God had defeated Goliath, and all the enemies of Israel, like the Canaanites and the Philistines that had tried to wipe them out. And he established the kingdom of David and Solomon. And if Zerubbabel would lead well, and if uh, the people would follow God, that he would bless them as well. Because when God's people obey him, he blesses them. Our choices matter. See, Zerubbabel is an ancestor of King David. And David and Solomon and even Zerubbabel are dim pictures of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And God is saying here that he, he, he spells it out. He says he's going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. The signet ring had the seal of the king. And the king would write a proclamation and he would dip that ring in wax and seal it. And it was used to provide authenticity of the message. It had authority and it had power. And breaking the seal of the signet could have meant death if you were not the intended receiver of the message. It was a serious thing. And this was important because Israel hadn't had a real leader for like 70 years. They were aimless. So God's telling Zerubbabel, uh, that you are going to be my chosen person. You're going to be my signet ring. And then God also says, Zerubbabel, this phrase, Zerubbabel, my servant. Now that might not seem that crazy, but that title in the Old Testament was often used to allude to the future Messiah. 
And God had did, uh, done this before with King David many times and also in Isaiah with the uh, Messianic prophecies, this prophecy of the suffering servant. So God is saying to Zerubbabel that he is going to be used for something good right now, but what he also does will be a taste of the great things that the Messiah will do in the future. And Zerubbabel played an important part of the history of God's chosen people of Israel. He helped reestablish the royal line of, the, uh, of David through which Jesus would be born through. And this made possible the fulfillment of the prophecy of the kingship of Jesus, the royalty of the Messiah. Zerubbabel is still revered in the rabbinic Jewish community even today. They even sing about him during Hanukkah. This is one of the prayers of Hanukkah. It says, Well, nigh had I perished when Babylon's end drew near. Through Zerubbabel was saved after 70 years. So we don't talk a lot about Zerubbabel. It's not, uh, and, and I, you know, you guys should just give me a round of applause for saying Zerubbabel so many times. <laughs> but yeah, woo, yeah. But uh, we don't talk about him a lot, but he was a very important figure. And Zerubbabel and Haggai were used to reestablish Jerusalem and to bring the temple back after its destruction, setting the stage for the Messiah to come. And even though this temple was not as grand as Solomon's temple, which lasted for 400 years, this temple gave the people a place to worship the one God and to look forward to the coming Messiah. So this is, this is the cool part. This would also be, this temple that they were hesitant to build, that we, they were looking at and saying, I'm not sure it's big enough. I'm not sure it's grand enough. This would be the temple that Jesus himself would walk through. And this temple would last for 600 years until 40 years after Jesus died and rose again. And this was the same temple that Jesus, as a boy, 12-year-old boy, went to for Passover. And his parents ended up leaving him behind. And then was, he was found in that temple asking questions of the teachers and them asking him questions. And they were amazed at his answers. This is the same temple that Jesus cleansed twice because of corruption. He did it once at the beginning of his ministry and once three years later, near the end of his earthly ministry, after the triumphal entry. Where Jesus went and said, hey, you're doing things wrong. Why? Because he was appalled and angry that they were price gouging people for items that they needed for worship, like doves and exchanging currency. And this made Jesus angry that they had set up these selling booths in the place where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come to pray and worship the one God. They had pushed out those outsiders that God wanted to reach and had taken advantage of the followers of God. And this is one of the, or a couple of the only times where Jesus gets really angry. Why? Because anger is not a fruit of the Spirit, right? But when vulnerable people are being taken advantage of and rampant greed cause harm to people made in God's image, then Jesus flips tables and he drives people out with a whip. That was this temple that that happened in. Isn't that amazing to think about as we've talked about the discouragement and the distraction and the fact that they had to purify their hearts and their minds to build this temple, that this would be the temple that the Messiah would come and walk through. This was the same temple where the veil was torn when Jesus died. That, this is that temple that God told them to rebuild 500 years earlier. The veil of this temple was uh, ripped right in half during the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And this curtain was huge. It was 40 foot tall and four inches thick. And what it did is it stood as a separation between the people and the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go, and only once a year. And this place behind the curtain was a representation of God's earthly presence uh, here in the temple. But now through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, the Bible says that we can now go boldly to the throne of grace. No separation. We don't need to be far away. We don't need someone else to go for us. And we don't need to wait once a year to go and talk to God. There's no wall of separation. And the veil was torn from top to bottom, representing that God opened up the holiest of holy places for you to come and for you to be in God's presence. And now we can go directly to God and we can point at Jesus and say, I'm with him, all because of the cross. We couldn't go in before because we're covered in sin and shame. But now through Christ, we can go into God's presence. This was that same temple that all this happened in. See, the obedience of Zerubbabel and Haggai and the people of Israel made a difference. 500 years before Christ came, they rebuilt the temple and that set the stage for the Messiah to come. Their choices mattered. And it wasn't as pretty as Solomon's temple, but it was special. And it was important. The obedience of these Jews coming back to Jerusalem. They've had a hard life. They had a hard time in exile in Babylon and Persia. But they made the choice. Even though they had to get preached to a couple times. And even though they had to get stirred up to do what God told them to do. Their choices made a difference. And I'm sure they had all the excuses in the world. And they just wanted to relax and to sit back and to live their best life in peace and comfort. They had earned it, certainly. They had been in exile. But they responded to this message from God, and they got to work. And because they did, it set the stage for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ to take away the sins of the world. And what they did 2,500 years ago affects us today. Their choices mattered. Because they put down their comfort and security and they went to work on the house of God to make a place for people to come and to give him the worship he deserves because they didn't get discouraged and didn't quit and because they cleansed their hearts and their hands as they built taking their mission seriously because they flipped their priorities and put God's house first because they did all this they paved the way for Christ the Messiah God in the flesh to come and heal and teach and do signs and wonders and then lay down his life to be crucified to take away your punishment for your sin take away all your shame and then here's another special part now the bible says if you are a follower of jesus christ that your body is the temple that god's spirit dwells in this temple prepared the way for jesus to come so that he might make a way that we would be in constant communion with god and that his spirit would dwell in us in first corinthians 6 19 it says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. How were you bought with a price? The price Jesus paid on the cross. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
You are a child of God. And if you've accepted this gift of salvation through faith in Jesus, then you are a walking, talking temple to God. So do temple stuff, right? Worship God and glorify God with your body. Praise God. Be a house of worship. We were bought with a price. Now we are God's house. So provide hope so that others can worship. Get the message out that God wants to dwell among men and have a relationship with those that are far from him. Everything that you think a church ought to be doing, a place of worship ought to be doing, is what I ought to be doing. I ought to be taking the message of being a light in the community, a place that pushes people to worship God. That's my responsibility as a temple for the Holy Spirit. And we've got a beautiful property here at Clarksburg Baptist Church. It's been passed down. This church existed since 1848. This sanctuary since 1896. This is wonderful what we've been given here in downtown Clarksburg. 175 years. And we need to do our best to take care of it. But do you know what's even more important? It's what God's people call the church do with their temple. See, all our stained glass may be beautiful, but if our spirit isn't, it's useless. And we grieve God. And there are many churches that had all the beauty in the world, but something happened and something changed and they're boarded up. We can have the most beautiful sanctuary, but if our spirit isn't sweet, it's useless, and we grieve God, and he's not pleased. And our music may sound the, the best in the world, but if our words aren't sweet to each other, then we're just spinning our wheels. We can open God's word on this stage, but we, if we don't live it out in these streets, then we're wasting our time. Our concrete foundation may be Flawless, but if our unity and love for each other are cracked and fragmented, then how will people know that we are his disciples? You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And God has called us to live in community with his people as the, the church. And when we obey God, and when we produce the fruits of the Spirit, and when we love God and love our neighbor, The Bible says the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. Haggai here is the third to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah and Malachi are the only two left. This was going to be a time after that there would be silence for 400 years, the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, And Zechariah and Malachi, they're contemporaries of Haggai, and one day we'll cover those books as well. But what Haggai tells us is what we do matters. Haggai and Zerubbabel's obedience and faithfulness still call us to repentance today. They prepared the way for Christ's work on this earth and for his kingdom to come. And that's something we ought to be doing here in Clarksburg, that God's kingdom would rush through the streets of Clarksburg and God would begin to change people's hearts and minds. Haggai's last message to these people is pointing them to his future, the future kingdom of Jesus Christ. And Jesus kicked that off with his first coming, but it will all be accomplished with his second coming. When Jesus comes to overthrow 
evil and to deal with evil and defeat every enemy and to make all things new and to rule and to reign in his kingdom forever. When you get discouraged and when you begin to doubt or when you begin to be disappointed with this world, remember that Jesus wins in the end. Evil will be dealt with and the battle belongs to the Lord. He has the victory. So don't get discouraged. Don't quit. Don't get distracted. Make sure your priorities are right. Tim Mackey says, Haggai's message shows us this, these three things. One, that our choices matter. Your choices matter. God uses the obedience of his people to work in the world. And this should motivate us to humility and action. So how are your choices going to affect future generations? Are we setting up those that come after us for more hurt and pain and aimlessness? Or are we setting them up to have purpose and a full life of glorifying God and following after God's will in obedience and joy? What you do, your choices today matter. We've been given this thing to pass on. And one day, God's going to establish his kingdom on earth forever. And this will all be over. Oh, praise King Jesus. But until then, we have some amazing things that we've been given from generations before us. And we also have some sin traps to watch out for. Just because they did it in the past doesn't mean that it's okay to do now. We need to have the Holy Spirit lead and guide us in this present age. Because our choices matter. Let's put God's house first. In the center of our lives. Not just God adjacent, but God center. Because he deserves the worship and the praise. This last week at Fuge, the one thing every night we'd ask, or Josh would ask the students to share a highlight of the day, and that could kind of be a funny thing, and then to share a shout out just to tell someone that they appreciated something about them, and also to share a God moment. And many, many, many times, the young people would say, it was just so awesome to worship God and to lift up our voices and to sing. A lot of times, the, the music would drop out and the, the voices would just sing together, and they were overcome with how that felt to look around and to see other people worshiping, and then for them to just give it all to God in that moment. And, and that was one of the things that Josh and I reminded them was that that feeling that you have when you let go and you give praise and you're not distracted by any of the other things and you just give glory and worship to God, that is what you were made to do. And the world has a lot of ideas and a lot of questions about what our purpose is and why we are here. And they might tell you your purpose is to live your best life or to uh, be yourself or to have this identity that you find. Well, none of that is true. There's only emptiness in those things. You were made to worship and glorify God because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He deserves our worship. He deserves our praise. We are his temple, so let's do temple things.
Let's bow our heads and, and close our eyes. It's fun to go through some of these Old Testament books because it's easy for us to take for granted the knowledge that we have about who Jesus is. We can look back and say, well, man, they just didn't know who Jesus was. And, but there's an amazing thing about that is they still followed God. We've got so much more information. We understand so much more about God's heart. How much more a responsibility is it for us? And, and a joy and a, and a pleasure to be able to surrender our will to him. If you're not a student of the Bible, I want to encourage you to fall in love with it. You're going to find so much. God's going to speak to your heart so much if you just spend time. And it might not always start off super exciting. There might be a certain uh, place in God's word where things seem dull, but there is a message throughout the whole entire Bible that God wants a relationship with us. Why? I don't know. Why does he care to forgive me over and over again and have mercy and grace for me over and over again even though I fail him and I turn my back on him and I offend him? I don't know. But that's just how good God is. No matter where you're at in the room today, God made you in his image. And you have breath in your lungs today and a heartbeat and a mind to think all because God formed and fashioned you. You're His. And you can run from Him, or you can take Him for granted, you can be apathetic, or you can do what you're made to do, to walk with God in step, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden before sin broke everything. As we pray, take this time of reflection. Why don't you ask God what priorities need to change in your life? What is in front of God? What thing is the thing that gets you the most angry or anxious or worried? What's the thing that has your heart? Why don't you give it over to Him? Trust. His way is better. As we continue to pray, I want to talk to just a, maybe a few people in the room. Maybe you're here today and you don't yet have a relationship with God. You're not against it. You're, you're interested. Maybe that's why you're here today. We just talked about it, that God wants a relationship with you. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all will come to repentance. But see, that problem of sin that started way back in the beginning is a separation. It's a wall between us and God. But Jesus did what was necessary to tear down that separation. 2,000 years ago on the
the cross. When the only innocent person to ever walk this earth laid down his life for all of us guilty people, covering our sin and shame, and buying us back. That's called the gospel. Jesus in my place. Jesus, an equal part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, walked this earth, put on flesh, and lived a perfect life so that he might die in your place. You don't have to be good enough to get to God. You don't have to have perfect attendance at church or give huge amounts of money or walk old ladies across the street. Because none of that, in fact, is motivated by simply pleasing God. All our righteousness, the Bible tells us, is filthy rags, and none of it can get us to Him. But Romans 5.8 says that God commended His love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus paid the price. And the Bible also says in Romans 10.13 that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you can call out to him in this moment right now and understand that you're a sinner in need of a savior and that Jesus paid the price and that you're putting all your faith in what he did on the cross to get you to God. It's not a magic prayer. It's not just words you recite. It's a decision in your heart. It's called repentance, turning away from your sin and turning to God. But you could call out to God right now with something like this. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I've done wrong. God, forgive me. I've sinned against you. I put my faith in what you did on the cross to save me. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Once again, the words aren't important, and you can call out to God. That's just a simple prayer, and yours could be much more personal and elaborate. What's important is that you put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross to save you. If you made that decision today, I'd love to know about it. Pastor Scott would love to know about it. Pastor Josh, we'd love to follow up with you. I'd love you to write that on your connection card. I chose Jesus because that's the biggest decision you could ever make in your life. And we'd love to tell you what's next because it's not the end of something. It's the beginning of a beautiful relationship with the one that made you. Write that down on your card before you pass it in. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the book of Haggai that reminds us that our choices matter. And that what we do today affects people years from now. God, help us to take what we've been given and to pass it on and to increase it, God. Help us to let this community know, the people around us know, that Jesus wants a relationship with them. That God made them and wants to be present with them. God, I pray for anyone in the room right now that feels distant or far away from you. Or maybe they have a big circumstance in their life right now that just looks insurmountable, God. I pray that they would 
remember to praise you in this moment and to trust you and to lay down their burdens and let you carry them. God, we love you.